You're raised as an athlete to fight back. So why all of a sudden, when you retire, do you stop the good fight? This is Finding Center with Nick Hardwick. Joining us on this episode of the Finding Center podcast is David Epstein. David is the author of two number one New York Times bestselling books, his latest, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, and The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. That was 2013. Prior to working as an investigative reporter at ProPublica, before he stopped that job to write his latest book, Epstein was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, where he specialized in science issues in sports and investigative reporting. With his colleague, Selena Roberts, Epstein broke the story that the Yankees' Alex Rodriguez tested positive for steroids in 2003. He's a graduate of Columbia University, earned a bachelor's degree in environmental science and astronomy and master's degrees in environmental science and journalism. So you remember the 10,000 hour rule, that one developed by Anders Ericsson and propagated by one of my other favorite authors, Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Outliers. I love that book and I bought into the 10,000 hour rule for a really long time. Essentially, the 10,000 hour rule implies that in order to become an expert in any field, All that is required is intense effort over 10,000 hours, and then once that 10,000 hours is reached, voila, you're an expert at anything you choose. I hear the same thing being told and sold by parents and coaches to their children all the time, and this is partly why kids are specializing sports at an early age. Parents and coaches have bought into a nonsensical rule of thumb and are hammering away at that 10,000-hour rule so their kids can get that coveted scholarship or sign that huge professional contract. That same thought process comes to mind when kids go to college and choose their majors and fields of specialty at 17 and 18 years old and then are expected, partly based on this rule, to just write it out, put in their time, push longer and harder than their peers, and eventually they will be successful. And adults looking maybe to shift gears at some point in their lives into another realm who may be burned out in one field and want to change directions in pursuit of different passions may be discouraged to do so because, well, Everyone else has a head start on them. So with his book, this book, David Epstein not only completely debunks the 10,000-hour rule, but through science and anecdotes anecdotes of some of our favorite success stories, he shows us why, in fact, great breadth of knowledge and varied experiences trump early specialization over the long haul. And as was the case with me, by doing that, he gives us a chance to evaluate our own lives and the pressure we may be putting on ourselves and perhaps our children in an attempt to maximize ours and their successes. For some of these reasons and more, David Epstein's book, Range, immediately went into my top five books of all time. I highly recommend it. You're going to fly through it and be thoroughly entertained. In fact, I own the audiobook version and I owned a hard copy version. I love it. Also, check out his other bestseller for you sporting folks out there, The Sports Gene. It's an excellent one, too. Stay tuned after the show for some key takeaways in a segment we're now calling Nick's Nuggets. Why did this book resonate so deeply with me? And how does a story about my kids' at-home art project relate to life? Wherever or however you are listening, I hope you enjoy. Joining us now on the Finding Center podcast is author David Epstein. David, thank you so much for the time. Thank you very much for having me. 
congratulations on this new book range. I, I own the audiobook version. I own the hardback cover. I mean, I absolutely loved it. So it's range why generalist triumph in a specialized world. What's it been like since publishing? Has it been a whirlwind? Yeah. I mean, I'd written one book before this, um, and that book was sort of a surprise success, but it still took a little more time to build. Whereas this one, uh, kind of got out of the blocks faster than I expected. So my, my head's definitely been spinning and I'm, and I'm very grateful for that. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful when something you do uh, resonates because when I go away and work on my own for a couple of years on something with like very little feedback, you really have no idea if you're in the ballpark and still, until you start hearing from other people basically. Yeah. What, what is that process like? Take me behind the scenes a little bit. So you say you go away for a couple of years, you're working, you got your head down doing all your research. What's the creative process? And I guess we could start with this. Where did the idea behind this new book start? It, it sort of, it started, the first seed came from my first book was, was called the sports gene. And, and that, in that book, uh, I critiqued some of the science underlying the so-called 10,000 hours rule that Malcolm Gladwell right. kind of popularized, but wasn't his work, but he popularized it. And the work underlying it was basically not rigorous. Um, and so I got invited to debate Gladwell, never met him before at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, which is this basically a data science conference founded by the general manager of the Houston Rockets. And... So we get invited to debate there, you know, and he's a really clever guy. And I'm like, I didn't want to get embarrassed on stage. Um, and so I tried to prepare for what he would talk about. And I knew he'd written about the importance of early specialization in sports. And we were, we were supposed to talk specifically about sports. And uh, so I was the science writer at Sports Illustrated at the time. So I said, you know, let me go look at what uh, the research actually shows. And it showed that in most sports, uh, future elite athletes actually early on are, are less likely to be specialized than athletes who plateau at lower levels. And they instead have what scientists call sampling period, where they do a variety of physical activities. You know, sometimes those are other sports, sometimes it's martial arts, dance, whatever. They gain these broader physical skills, uh, learn about their interests and abilities, and delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And so I, so I brought up that data. And when we're coming off the stage, Malcolm goes, you know what you got me on was that thing. Like, that doesn't really fit with, with what <laughs> I've been saying. And, you know, to his credit, he and I became running buddies, uh, basically. And we would talk about it on our own time. And I sort of filed it in the back of my head. And then later on, when I got involved with the Pat Tillman Foundation, um, you know, which gives uh, scholarships to soldiers, veterans, and military spouses who are, who are looking for career changes, essentially, you know, using what they had learned in the service in many cases to, to pursue some, some new goal. Uh, I realized how, you know, self-conscious th these people were and how they felt behind and all this, even though they had these incredible experiences that should be their best assets going into different work, they were kind of being told that they were behind. And, and the discussion Malcolm and I had had about sports came back to my mind and I said, you know what, maybe sports is just the jumping off point for a project, um, you know, that extends into other domains in the world. So that, that was a long story for sort of the genesis of it. No, that's fantastic. And how did you feel? Because it did, it started off kind of with the toes still in the sports world, Roger versus yeah. Tiger, and then it kind of shifted gears. How did you feel about that? I mean, were you nervous about kind of stepping into another world that you, you haven't delved in exclusively? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, my career has been really odd in ways. I mean, when I was at, I, you know, I was like living in a tent in the Arctic training to be a scientist when I decided for sure I wanted to try to be a writer. <laughs> um, and so I was a little used to doing things that from the outside look, I don't know, frankly, stupid, I guess, or, or like getting behind 
Um, and then, you know, like when I finally became a, a staff writer at Sports Illustrated, then I left to be an intern at this startup doing investigative work. And I was always sort of doing weird stuff. But when my first book came out and it, it becomes, you know, again, sort of a surprise success, uh, suddenly I'm like, my sort of public work face is as the sports gene guy. That was the title of the book. And meanwhile, right when it came out, I left to go to a place called ProPublica, which is a startup that does all investigative reporting. So, so my sort of personal work trajectory was totally diverging from my, my public face. And, you know, so I think uh, everyone who had followed my, my book writing was like, when, when is the sports gene two? When is the sports gene two? And I'm like, oh man, there's gonna be some disappointed people because, <laughs> you know, there's sports in the introduction. So maybe I can like fool them a little bit, <laughs> but then it, then it goes into all these other areas, but that's kind of, uh, I guess for the way I go about a book project, I really need something that's going to sustain my interest because I find it to be a very painful process. Um, and so, so I really oriented it toward things that I thought that would, that would keep my interest. And I, and I felt like I had, had written one sports book and that was kind of my capstone project for uh, sports science. How long, how long and arduous is writing a book of this magnitude where it's really data driven, a lot of science behind it, but also you find these unbelievable anecdotes that kind of tie it all together. What's, Give me a little look into the creative process behind all of it. What's your daily routine, and do you allow yourself just days off, months off, weeks off? What's it look like? Yeah, that's a good question. This is funny because, again, when, when I got this unexpected interest in the first book, people started asking me. Uh, it's, it's funny because even before they ask you what's a book about, the two things people want to know the most are, how long did it take to write? Did you go on tour? And do you get royalties? Right? <laughs> None of them have anything to do with the book. Um, and but, but they would ask, you know, how did you do it? Because I think a lot of people are, you know, have, have the thought in their mind that maybe someday they would write a book. And so I, and I couldn't really recall because I'm not that much of a creature of habit kind of guy. So I asked my wife, you know, how did, how did I write this? And her answer was, you went upstairs and came down two years later. <laughs> um, I was like, okay, that's true, but not what I was looking for. Um, but it, it's, it's hard to say like what the defined time period is because for me, the ideas are sort of percolating for a while first, and I'm sort of thinking about them as opposed to saying, you know, I'm going to write a book for sure. What's an idea? Um, so they're kind of in the back of my head. But once I, for range, once I signed the contract, I, I delivered the manuscript about two years later, and it was way over length, and so I had to cut it down. It's when you learn things like that, you know, books get published in uh, multiples of 16 pages that you have to fit. Um, and... So for the first year for both of my books, I don't even really write. I basically try to read 10 scientific journal articles a day, every day for the year. Um, and, and I make it most days and I keep this thing I call a master thought list while I'm doing that, where I'll just write down on, you know, an electronic document, what was interesting about this paper or what was relevant or some figure that was important or whatever. And I put the, the reference down so I can keep track. And as things sort of start coalescing around an area of research, I, I move them toward each other physically on the on the document. And as they, you know, become a clear idea, I, I like tag it with a phrase and a bunch of words that I think I would word search if I were going to look for this idea. And then as I have more of those, what I call tags, these sort of core concepts, I start like moving them around. So some that lead to others are in order. And it's kind of like a movie storyboard by the end. And that becomes like my my initial outline. So I, I think of it the same. I had a film editing experience that was like the biggest influence of anything I've done in my writing where 
I, I was working doing a little documentary with this guy who had repetitive stress injury. So he had to, he had to tell me how to do the editing physically. So he was like the brains and I was the motor skills. Um, and you get the film, you know, you have all your film and you cut it into chunks and all the stuff between the chunks hits the cutting room floor. And then the question is, how do you arrange the chunks that are still there so that one out point, you know, which is like a fade out, leads to the next in point to draw somebody back? Uh, you know, and, and, and people who are really good at that can do it even with silly material, you know, like a Wes Craven who has silly material, but he can often still bring you back from the fade out because you want to see what comes next. And for me, those are the section breaks and the chapter breaks. And so I'm just sort of shuffling it as if I'm sort of making a movie in my head that's investigating a, a core question. Isn't it really interesting because as you're kind of talking through this and I've read your biography, your, your biography and, you know, talking about the film and you've got a bachelor's degree in environmental science and astronomy. And you were talking about working up in the Arctic circle when it kind of hit you that you wanted to become a writer and the mat, you got the master's degree in environmental science. And then you got the journalism that goes along with it. I mean, this book, you're essentially the living embodiment of the book where you've got all these different skill sets that you've come through by sampling a bunch of life. It, it, it almost is not permission for you to be successful, but you know, I, I guess the reason that it resonates so much with me. It resonates with me in, in two respects. One is as a guy who at 38 is still kind of trying to find myself post NFL career, finding a new identity. And I had a circuitous route as well to even get into football. I mean, I was a wrestler. I became a ROTC student, walked onto the football team, had an 11 year career, got into the media and now kind of finding new avenues within that. I mean, you had your own really circuitous route to get to where you are as well. Yeah, very, and, and, you know, very much some of my own interest in, because I, I often felt every time I was switching directions, you know, I, I was advised not to do that <laughs> for the most part. Not everyone. There were people. I remember this writer I love named Lawrence Gonzalez. I called him when I was probably like 25 or something and wanting to get into writing. And was like, what should I, what should I do? I'm behind. And he was like, go work on a Russian, Russian fishing vessel for five years. You won't be behind and you'll have something interesting to write about. <laughs> and at the time, that made no sense to me. But in retrospect, I totally get it. Because, um, you know, it, when you're young, you, you feel like you're in a huge rush. And the older you get, like, you look back and say, well, I wasn't in quite as much of a rush as I thought. But um, the I was definitely, in, you know, I always felt like maybe there's something wrong with me. I'm not just sort of staying the course. And um specifically like when i got to sports illustrated i first got in as a temp fact checker um and i was probably five six years older than people who i was essentially doing you know kind of much lower level work for um and i'm just a temp with a six-month gig and i had gotten off the science track and i'm kind of thinking well you know it was good for me to learn about myself that i don't want to be a career scientist but also now i'm behind but then I pretty soon realized that, like, whereas I was a very, I would say, average scientist, suddenly you take those skills that are ordinary in the science realm and bring them over to the sports magazine. It's like you're a Nobel Prize winner, you know. Um, so it's like taking something that was ordinary in one area and bringing it to another area where it's extraordinary. And in science, I wasn't the best scientist, but I was a better writer than most of the scientists. And in Sports Illustrated, there were better writers, but but no better, you know, people in science. And so... I feel like my whole career has been what some people call skill stacking, where it's like maybe I'm not the single best at a particular thing, but I can overlap these sort of unique experiences and skills to create, you know, my own turf and, and make some unique contributions. You're essentially like 10 people in one. 
right? Like if you were to assemble a team that was going to go after a task, you would have 10 different personalities and 10 different kind of skill sets and they would come together and they would be able to get a really large task accomplished like the one that you accomplished with range. I mean, that to me is really the essence of range. It's a little bit of sampling. It's a little bit of trying on new mask, figuring out what you like, what you don't like, and then being able to take those and really put them together moving forward. Is that, I mean, is that kind of the core concept of what you're trying to get at with range? Definitely. And, and, and the idea that that one of the, I would say one of the sub themes to me, this just doesn't, wouldn't make for a good subtitle of the book is that sometimes the things you can do that cause the most rapid short-term progress uh, can undermine your long-term development. And whether that's committing to a particular sport forever or a particular career forever, or never getting off the linear track of your career, right? Those things all, or, or even the way that, you know, I write about how people learn math and um, sometimes the things that you can do that seem so obvious will give you a short-term advantage actually are not the best in the long run. And I think that's been the same for the, what you were talking about, this sort of first trying on my different masks, right? Because I had to learn, I had to find my own match quality. That's the term economists use for the degree of fit between someone's interests and abilities and the work that they do. And it turns out to be really important for your sense of fulfillment and your performance. And then also to broaden my, you know, broaden my toolbox. And the, the problem with broadening your toolbox is you could always be doing the thing right, right ahead of you. Right. And that always seems like it makes sense at the moment, but that's also not how you build this broad toolbox that in a lot of the research I cite leads people to their creative breakthroughs or becoming better judges of uh, events in the world or, um, you know, finding a better place for themselves or, or making unique contributions. And so I think it's the trick is you have to allow some time to build a broad toolbox if you actually want to have one uh, later on. When you were making these shifts in careers, did it feel reckless when you were making the moves? Uh, yeah, sometimes it really did. And, and people, well, it felt reckless because people would tell me that it was kind of reckless. But also pretty early, I did realize that the people telling me that were the ones who had stayed at the job that I was leaving. So I realized there was like some selection bias in the advice I was getting. Um, but yeah, it did feel reckless. And there was a certain point where I would ask myself, like, gosh, why, you know, why wouldn't I just stick with something, <laughs> you know, like, but, but I found that I, I could tell pretty quick, I guess I, I do a lot of sort of reflection naturally on my own strengths and weaknesses and what's working for me. And so I think I pick up pretty quickly on if work is, you know, sort of a good fit for my strengths and weaknesses. And also I liked being at the beginning, you know, I had, when I was young, I had like, no, you know, I, I didn't own anything. didn't have much expenses and stuff like that. And I did like being in the early part of the learning curve on different skills where you're really making really rapid progress. And so uh, I enjoyed that moving around. It was just that I was being, you know, told to, to figure my stuff out. So it, it, it definitely felt reckless, even though it also, um, you know, felt, felt like what I wanted to do. You know, the, the other area that this really resonated with me is as a parent. And I've got a seven-year-old boy, a five-year-old boy, going to turn eight and six here in a couple of months. And they're starting to get into athletics and we're kind of getting into that world a little bit. And it just seems like everybody's in a rush to get their kids specialized in a sport, to be able to get them a college scholarship so they can go on to make millions in the pros, which 
as we know, is not really likely to happen, even with kids of a former professional athlete. It's just not that likely to happen. And chapter one, right off the bat, was called the cult of the head start. And I think we, as parents, like I hear this all the time. It's it's the grit book that came out. It's the 10,000 hour rule. It's the battle hymn of the tiger mom. And as you phrase yeah. it, it's it's that cult of the head start. How how far off is that? And and I guess you can't say for every kid the head start is wrong. I mean, there are some no. kids with that singular focus. But, yep. you know, as, as we're talking about parenting and with kids, how would you say overall, is it, when you're looking at the science and the research and the data and all that, when you're looking at parents and kids, what what would you guide them with? Yeah, a cu- couple things that you brought up that I want to touch on. And, and first of all, as an aside, it's funny thing is I find sometimes, and I don't know if you'll tell me if this is not true for you, but um, that, you know, there's some countries where the sports development pipelines are like more holistic, like in France for soccer, where they take sort of a long-term view. Whereas in the U.S., it's, it's like there's lots of coaches for eight-year-olds whose only incentive is to win the eight-year-olds championships. And so their incentive is not the long-term development right. um, for, for the kid. And I often find that former pro athletes are like the easiest people to convince about this because most of them played multiple sports. Right. So sometimes it's like, we're talking to Dara Torres, you know, like one of the all-time great swimmers who also played volleyball yeah. in the U S and so he's like arguing with her, uh, you know, kids coach or whatever. <laughs> it's just funny to think that, you know, it's, it's that the, that the youth coaches kind of argue with, with elite athletes in that way. But, um, and, and the elite athletes are like never the soccer parents kind of thing. Um, sorry, so I mean that in the, you know, the euphemism of the overbearing. Parent. Oh, I totally got you. Yeah. Um, so the grit thing, I think an interesting thing to point out is the week that range was published and maybe this coincidence, maybe not, doesn't matter. Angela Duckworth, who's the researcher most associated with grit. Uh, I subscribed to her newsletter and that week her newsletter was titled, titled summer is for sampling. And it was about how kids should take the summer to do a bunch of different things and figure out, you know, where they fit, broaden their skills. She said it took her a decade before she figured out a good niche for herself, where she should apply her grit. Uh, And so I thought that was really interesting because that's not so much the message that people are getting. Right. I think maybe, so so maybe the takeaway is like, you should be gritty when you should be gritty, which, which is not a very tidy message. Um, (laughs) But I'm, but I'm glad that she's trying to nuance it a little bit. Yeah, That that message that message gets misconstrued a lot, right? Cause you can be gritty seasonally. And like she says, summer is for sampling, but you can also be gritty where, where we're talking about grit. I think parents, the message gets lost on them. It's like, you don't have to only do baseball in the spring, fall, the summer and all of it, or you don't yeah. just have to do flag football year round. If you want your kid to be a football player and, and more likely than not, you shouldn't be doing that. That's right. That's right. And um, no, totally. And, and I think, uh, you know, one of the, one of the really important concepts that stuck with me, um, as I was doing research on grit was this concept that one of the researchers, uh, summarized as when you get fit, it looks like grit. Meaning once you get someone with good match quality, or again, work that, that fits their interests and abilities, they will often display more of the characteristics associated with grit, like resilience and work ethic, even if they didn't before. So if you look at the psychology in this area, grit looks a lot more like what psychologists call a state as opposed to a trait. A trait is something that's inherent about you in literally everything you do. If it's a trait, it doesn't matter if you're uh, learning how to cook, you know, or 
or learning how to be a soldier, a football player, like it, it, it's there no matter what you're doing. A state is a characteristic of you that is dependent on the context. So you're grittier in some context than others. And I think that's important for people to keep in mind um, because if we can help people find fit, that's, that's the quickest way to improve uh, some of their grit. And I think that dovetails with what you mentioned about for some kids, you know, finding something and focusing on it may be the way to go. Uh, but I think, I think it's important to note that, and, and I should, I might include this in an afterword when I write it for the book, that some of the most powerful stories we tell about that, we don't tell quite right. So Tiger Woods, who's sort of the epitome of the, the early specialization story, he said in 2000 that his father never asked him to play golf. It was always him bugging his father. And he said, it's the child's desire to play, not the, the parent's desire to have the child play that matters. And Mozart, who I think is probably the second most used story in, in the so-called 10,000 hours books. Um, I was going through old letters of his, his childhood and you'd see that his father actually initially responded to his very unusual displays of interest and prowess. So there's one, one letter where a musician goes to the Mozart household to play with a bunch of adults, including Mozart's father. And little Mozart comes in and says, Hey, I want to play the second violin part. And his dad is like, you haven't had any lessons, you know, what you can't, you obviously can't play, get out of here. And he starts crying. And so this guy who wrote the letters named Andre Schachner, he, he says like, all right, I'll play with him in the other room, you know, and Mozart's dad's like, okay, but be quiet. And next thing you know, they hear the second violin part coming from the other room. So the adults come in and they see that, you know, young Wolfgang Mozart is playing with, with fingering that he's totally made up because nobody's taught him. And remember the letter then says verbatim, Little Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to insist that he could also play the first violin. And then he then he goes and does that. And then his father realizes, like, there's something very unusual here. So these weren't sort of parent manufactured cases. So I think the best, even even if you're aiming for the Tiger, the Mozart, the best chance is to actually expose the kid to a bunch of stuff and see if something lights their fire that in that very unusual way. There's no evidence that these people get just sort of created out of thin air by a parent who, who just, you know, just picks for them. David, correct me if I'm wrong. You've got a kid of your own now. Yep. Eight month old, eight yep. month old. How's first, it going? First one. I, I got to say, I think it's my, 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 I think it's, it's much more interesting than I thought it would be at this stage. <laughs> I thought I'd be kind of waiting for it to get more interesting, but my wife is in a, a parent's group and or a, a mom's group. And one day they had the dads come in and, uh, you know, tell their experience of the pregnancy and all that. And I think I was the dad who was, so my, my wife had her first contractions the day I turned in the final edits for Ray. No kidding. And so it was like the, the most down period I'd had in a while. And so I would tell these dads, I'm like, you know what? I'm actually getting like more sleep than I was a couple months ago. I think they all wanted to punch me in the face. You know, because, <laughs> um, but so, so yeah, compared to that, I'd say it's actually been a little easier than I thought it would be. Not to say it's easy, but a little easier than I expected. Maybe because I expected it just to totally blow me away. And more interesting, so I'm I'm really enjoying it. Well, good for you. Eight months. My my with my first child being born, ten months was kind of the window where the clouds opened up above me, and it was, I felt like we had a real human being here, and I could interact. And I was like, okay, I'm starting to see what this is going to turn into, and that's when it really became, I guess, less depressive for me. And and now gotcha. that we're now that we're seven and five, I feel like I'm right in my wheelhouse. I mean, I could throw the ball around with them. I do my best not to allow them to kill each other in our little trampoline. <laughs> it's a, we got a trampoline out back and the boys use it as kind of a UFC 
octagon essentially it's like they go out there and i'm like hey let's try to stick to bouncing if you don't mind but they seem to think that it's a wwe ring so after having after having written these books sports gene and range do you feel like in a way you've kind of built yourself a guidebook for parenting to to an extent you know i think one thing i try to resist is being too prescriptive right like as we mentioned, there's a lot of different ways, you know, there's many different life paths as there are people. And so in part, I think some of the things I've learned are that, uh, you know, and this was a theme in sports gene too, is how much really individual variation there are, there, there is among people. And so you have to sort of be accepting of different paths. And so I don't think it means that I've got like parenting figured out, you know, although I do have eight months of experience. So, you know, if anybody, uh, <laughs> tips. Um, but but I do think it makes me a little better equipped mentally to kind of deal with some of the vicissitudes of parenting. And, and it's sort of also given me a model for my approach. There's something I, I mentioned only in a footnote in range that I kind of regret and that I may expand in afterward. It was that I'm using, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of as a model. It was the army's talent based branching program. I know it doesn't sound good to say I'm modeling my, my parenting on the army here, but um the talent-based branching program is this one where instead of, as they were sort of, the army was losing the people it was identifying as the highest potential. And so, and they realized eventually that it was because they weren't allowing people any agency in their career matching. And so they started this program called talent-based branching, where instead of saying, here's your career track, get up or out, they say, okay, we're going to pair you with a coach and you're going to try one career track and then reflect on how that fits you with your coach and then try another, you know, and, and a few others. And you'll get a better sense of what's out there, you know, what your colleagues do, and we'll triangulate a better fit for you. And I'm sort of seeing my role as like that coach in the talent-based branching process who facilitates a bunch of different opportunities. And I I can't really pick what my kid will like or not, but I'll I'll try to help them get the maximum amount of signal about themselves from each of those experiences. So make sure that at least they're learning about themselves and their options as they're going forward. So that's sort of how I'm conceiving my, my role. And I found that to be you know, again, I only have an eight-month-old, so what can he do now? But but that's that's the model I'm thinking of going forward. No, I love that model. And and when the army does it, and when they're talking about putting people in different career paths and then pulling them back and putting them in another one, pulling them back, if somebody just falls in love and has a natural aptitude to that initial career path that that they put them in, do they allow them to stay, or do they say, no, 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 we're going to pull you out and we're going to put you in another one so you can broaden out a little bit? Oh yeah, no, they will allow them to stay. Yeah, they will allow them to stay if they want to, and if it, and if it's clear that they're a really good fit, um, and and that happens. But for the most part, the first the first attempt is is usually not the best fit, you know. And so a lot of people take advantage of this. And actually, it's worked so well when they when they started hemorrhaging their highest potential. Like it, it got to the point where the more money the army was likely to give someone as a scholarship, the, the more likely that person was to quit as soon as they could because they're talented and had lots of options. Um, and first they tried to throw more money at people to assist these future officers to keep them. And the ones who were going to stay took it and the ones who were going to leave left anyway. And that was a half billion dollars taxpayer money down the drain. It didn't change retention at all. And then because stuff like talent-based branching without the money has changed retention, they're now thinking about expanding it and even like maybe giving officers year-long sabbaticals or allowing them to, to switch from one branch of the service to another without going back the way they had to in the past. So they're, they're really, I think, uh, impressed by the success of this and, and trying to expand it in various ways. But it's, it's not totally prescriptive. Like if somebody just gets their 
their Mozart Tiger fire lit by the first thing they try, that's they're not forced out of it. Yeah, how much of that is really kind of dependent on changing generations as we're going through time here? Like the millennials, they, the money, they're not necessarily money-driven or – I guess even like victory driven, but it's more about how much personal enjoyment are they getting out of the career that they're doing right now? Is, is that all part of the army's plan in the program? I, I definitely think so. Cause at, at first, actually, when they noticed this, because this retention problem, they first noticed it among uh, West Point graduates starting in the early 1990s, where all of a sudden, what used to be really high retention, they were losing them as soon as their service commitment was done. And at first they were like, ah, oh, you know, it's a millennial, millennial grit problem. Um, and then sort of realized that it was actually, if you gave them some more agency over this career matching that, that worked like rocket fuel. So I, I do think, um, you know, it's, it's part of this millennial job searching and, and matching. And I think it's also part of the way, you know, that that in, in turn, is a function of some of the ways our economy has changed because pre-knowledge economy, like when for most of the 20th century, when we were an industrial economy, uh, it made specialization made a lot of sense because work next year looked like work last year. It wasn't changing that rapidly. And so you wanted people who had very specialized experience in a particular task. They could kind of more or less do their whole life. And that meant that there were huge barriers to lateral mobility too. So people didn't really have the ability to move between jobs the same way. Then with the knowledge economy, suddenly you prize people's ability to engage in knowledge creation and creative problem solving and to continually reinvent themselves as the work world changes. Uh, and so now you have this incredible lateral mobility. So I think it's, I think some of the, the sort of millennial sentiment has, has also just grown out of the, the changes and in, in, you know, much larger changes in our economy and in the world. You know, when, and this is kind of more specific towards the sports gene, but when you're writing these books, you don't really shy away from the tough topics, which I really love. Like in sports gene, I mean, the gender issues, the race issues that everybody in a locker room for 11 years that we would openly talk about. I mean, the difference between black men and white men, and it wasn't a big deal for us, but out in the public now, this is a, this is a really volatile topic. And I mean, a couple of the topics would be why did Jamaicans win so many sprint contests? Why did the Kenyans dominate the endurance sports? And I'll throw this in there. My son, who's seven, very observant, we're watching football the other day, and he goes, Dad, most of the guys that play football, except the quarterbacks and linemen, they're dark-skinned. And they're really they're really sensitive topics, right? But yeah, how how difficult, how, how sensitive are you towards the PR, and how do you navigate all of that? I mean – very sensitive personally. Like I want to do things that I think are, uh, you know, good and useful for the world. I want also want to investigate these questions, you know, very honestly. And, and sometimes that, that goes to places that are uncomfortable for me, but with the sports gene where I did write about, you know, race and ethnicity and gender, I remember there was a point where I was, as I was learning this, I was starting to get concerned because, and, and thinking about, gosh, maybe I should just leave some of this alone. And I remember a scientist I was talking to was showing me some data he had about um, people with different ethnic backgrounds, how they responded differently to a particular dietary supplement. And I thought, you know, that that's that'd be useful information for some people to have. And then he told me that he would he, there was no way he was going to publish it because, you know, he didn't want to imply that there were any differences between any people in the world because 
that could eventually be extrapolated to say that, well, there are intelligence differences between people. And, and first of all, those things are not connected whatsoever, right? Um, this whole idea that, that intellect and athleticism are on some kind of biological teeter-totter, that, that wasn't even a thing until athleticism became associated with black athletes like Jack Johnson and then Jesse Owens, right? So Hitler's plan was to show that, uh, you know, the, the Aryan race was the best of body and mind. And then Jesse Owens came in the Olympics and reigned on that parade. And so he sort of did a marketing reversal that was like, oh, yeah, well, because they're closer to animals, oh. you know? So, so that was always a marketing trick. It was never like it was never like science was leading to bigotry. It was like the bigotry comes first and then it, it becomes sort of a marketing trick. And so I, I think I so I, I didn't want to be like that scientist and say, I'm going to shy away from information that's useful to people because because I might get criticized. Um, or, or scientists would tell me things like if they were not sharing certain findings, like, oh, you should write about this. I can't because I don't have tenure yet. And I'm like, I don't have tenure. <laughs> um, so, but so I, so I didn't want to shy away from the things that I, that I had found. And I, but I made sure to incorporate things like that history that I just mentioned, um, to try to frame these difficult conversations, uh, you know, in an honest way, um, and, and, helping people see why engaging with them in an honest way um, can actually lead us to better and, and sort of more sensitive approaches as opposed to just staying away from them altogether where you get this sort of polarization where people are only in their own echo chamber, I guess. Yeah, I think one thing that, that kind of sits with me is people don't really like being told they can't do something because of the way they're born, right? It's Yeah. But, but really science points to kind of a more deterministic viewpoint and tells us we can't do something or we can't be something like I know I'm not going to be a marathon runner I can look at my ankles or cankles and say well that's a <laughs> that ain't going to hold up well over a 26.2s but you probably picked up early on you weren't going to be an offensive lineman in the NFL it's it's yeah. this funny thing genetics like we can't really do anything about the way we were born yet it's so taboo to talk about it especially when it comes to athletics yeah and 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 I understand that because we don't want to discourage people right and and but I tried to frame it as I was learning about this to to help people realize what are some of the positive things about you know about these messages and I think to me one of the positives was okay you can usually you can't do anything about your genes but you can do something about your environment and we can often uh help people get into a better place for themselves or find a better kind of training for themselves and if we can experiment and sort of try to tailor the environment to them a little bit. So, because I sort of thought, even though the 10,000 hours message is supposed to be the really positive one, to me, that message says, okay, it doesn't matter what you pick, just pick something and start your hours. But in fact, what the science says is that it, it does matter what you pick. Like it does matter that you didn't pick the marathon and start your 10,000 hours. And so, so I think it should be viewed in some ways as a positive message that we should help people get to the spot where they can best succeed. So my, as I thought about, should I write about genetics or not? The, the sort of rubric I came up in, with in my head was, it, it's important to know what differences between people are A, real, and not just folklore or, or bigotry or something like that. B, which of those matter for the outcomes we care about in the world. And then C, how can we use that knowledge to try to get the best outcomes for all people? And, and I think that's actually, you know, uh, a reasonable and hopefully helpful way to approach things as opposed to just ignoring differences between people and, and you know, saying, 
you know, Nick, you should try to be a marathoner, and I might as well try to be an offensive lineman. Yeah, because we're really just beating our head against the wall, which I guess I was kind of doing for the 11 years of my career was beating my head against the wall. <laughs> happened to be a moving wall. So, David, when we look at the science, and, and I'm thinking about my children here, and I'm thinking about other parents that are listening in, what age do you think it's appropriate to start honing them into kind of their field, perhaps? And obviously, really early. And I understand, I mean, range, when you talked about it earlier, it's really looking at the world and our lives kind of a more of a long-term view rather than a short-term view. But yeah. I got, I got parents out there who are living in the moment, right? And yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. still living in the moment, making the most of this moment that we have, and then wanting my kids to have success and, and not like pushing them into things. I really do believe that it needs to be child focused, child driven. I mean, you use the story of Mozart earlier. It's that to me is when they find what they love, they're going to be able to be singularly focused on it until that passion really runs out. So when we're thinking about like ages, age appropriate to get kids really pushing hard into one thing or a couple of things, like what age, what would the science point us to there? And and do we mean sports or non-sports stuff? Well, I, tell me the difference between the two. I think for sports, the age is necessarily going to be younger because the whole timeline is constrained, right? Some of the timing of specialization in sports doesn't have anything to do with what would actually be best, but it's like you, you have to play, you know, well, most people have to play in high school. I guess you didn't have to play in high school. um, (laughs) Antonio Gates didn't have to, well, he didn't play in college. Right. Okay. So, but most, for most people, the system, you know, and then college, usually, the vast majority of people are constrained sort of by that system and even more so now than ever. Like when I lived in Brooklyn until recently and there was a U seven travel soccer team that met at a schoolyard near me. I don't think there's a human being in the world who thinks that six year olds can't find good enough competition in a city of 9 million people. Right. If there's someone who actually thinks about that, I'd like to meet them. But the, the adult who's running this league has a financial interest in, in telling those kids, well, if you're not on, U7 travel team, you can't be on the U8 team, and then you can't be on the U9, right? And setting up a pipeline that keeps his customers to himself. Thank you for saying that, because I really do feel like so much of this is driven by capitalism and a couple of individuals that are running these clubs and leagues. I'm I'm, I'm thankful you said that, because not many people are having that conversation. And so there it's like, well, what is the best for special, you know, what is the best timing of specialization? It doesn't even matter because you're not allowed to play out what the best development is. So in some other countries, like I mentioned, the French soccer development pipeline, they started reforming it like decades ago where they get kids early. They're, they're playing soccer early, but a kid who's in the development pipeline, you know, of equal ability in France to an American kid will play about half as many formal games in France. And they have a saying that there's no remote control uh, or one of the guys who designed the pipeline said this, that means the coaches shouldn't be micromanaging the young players because they want to develop their creativity. And even though they're playing soccer, they, they vary the challenges up a ton. Like they'll play on different shaped fields or with different number of players or different surfaces or different types of balls. And so I think, because I, I really think the sport diversification is in many ways just a proxy for movement diversity, like becoming physically literate. Yes. And so I think they've sort of found a way to have people in soccer but still diversify that movement and, and 
same thing with Judy Murray, who's the mother of Andy and Jamie Murray. You know, Andy Murray, the best. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, has long been one of the best tennis players in the world. And she had this camp where people are willing, parents are willing to take their kids out of the normal development system and send them to her just because she's Judy Murray, right? And then at the camp, she has them playing tennis, but it's like, okay, one day they're playing with some different kind of ball through tree branches. And the other day they're playing with a deflated ball and a weird racket. So it's like there's a racket and there's a ball. But it's not it's tennis enough for parents to think the kids are just playing tennis, but it's not really. It's kind of a different challenge all the time. And so I, I hope that if we insist on sort of having to have kids in so early, we can follow some of those developmental models that have a lot of the, the less structured play early on and the varying of the physical challenges, um, you know, and and not kind of having to to, to home in until maybe the, the mid teen years, although. I don't think we even know what ideal is because when, when the study about the German soccer players that won the world cup came out, it turned out that they didn't start doing, they, they only stopped doing more unstructured play and dabbling in other types of physical activities on their own time when they were about 22 compared to players who had, uh, you know, gotten stuck at lower levels. And so I'm not sure we even know what the best is because the system kind of constrains us for the most part. And most people, have to have to start specializing in the mid-teen years at the latest probably yeah sports does have that urgency about it i mean even living in the sports world it's like every single season that i played seemed like five years of life and urgency and jobs were on the line and yeah i do understand that those constraints but what about in the non-athletic world is there any urgency you know i think i think i think not that much And, and i'm saying this is a guy who has literally no idea what he's doing next um I left my day job to finish this book. And, and every time I finish a big project, I'm like back to being a freshman in life, basically. <laughs> That's awesome. um, and I think when, when I, for all this research I've looked at, like there's been a renewed emphasis on people getting specialized career training earlier so they can function better right away in the work world. The problem is research that looked at that, it, it looked at about a, almost a dozen countries at people who are matched for their parents' years of education matched for uh, their test scores, matched for their own years of education. The only difference was, did they get specialized career training or did they get a general, more broader general education first before later, more specific training? And what the research found was that the people who got the specialized career training right away jump out to an income lead um, because they have more domain-specific skills, but they're less flexible, right? Their toolbox is a lot more narrow. And so as the economy changes, they can't change with it as much and they end up spending a lot less time overall in the labor market. So as with so many of the findings in this book, the people who started broad earlier start out behind and then they win in the long run. And there's a basically identical finding to that in looking at when people sort of pick a specific course of study in college. The, the people who go later, they start out behind, but they pick a better fit. And so they have faster growth rates. And so by about six years out of college, they, they fly past the people who had to pick a specialty in their mid-teen years. Um, and that, that seems to be the pattern. So the approach, I think, is kind of and, – and that a lot of the people in the book I wrote about took wasn't to say, oh, I'm, I'm going to go be broad. What they did was they set out to look for match quality, and that caused them to continually zigzag in a way where throughout, in some cases, their entire lives, they're – they're continually learning about themselves and, and sort of changing directions. And I think the people that embodied this were the subjects 
in this research at Harvard called the Dark Horse Project. It, it wasn't initially called that, but these researchers were studying how do people find work that fits them well and, and that they feel fulfilled in. And all these people would come in, not all of them, it was like about 90% of them, because there were some people who did the straight and narrow, it was just a small, small minority. And they would come in and say like, well, you know, don't tell people to do what I did because I started in one thing and then I got off that track and did another and that didn't work. And then I got lucky and found my thing. And they would all view themselves as having come out of nowhere. They would all view themselves as dark horses and say, don't tell people to do what I did. <laughs> and the researchers found that was the norm. And the kind of the common trait that a lot of these people had was instead of saying, here's my 10 or 20 year plan, they'd say, here are my skills and interests right now. Here are the opportunities in front of me right now. I'm going to try this one and maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. And they just keep doing that continually until they, they get to places where they're, they're fulfilled and succeed. And I think that probably sounds a bit uh, like some of the things you did yeah. um, in, in your own career. But that's, that's, so I think like that's the approach to take. And the specific best time of specialization, I suspect, is, is pretty dependent on the exact domain. Um, so I think the, the only sort of broader thing to go with is, is, is this sort of approach. Uh, and the work, like a lot of the jobs that people are, the kids are going to be working in don't even exist right now anyway. So it would be hard to tell them exactly That's what true. to specialize in. Um, and, and plus this other, this other finding, I always keep in mind the end of history illusion, right? The psychology finding that everyone will tell you that they changed a lot in the past based on their experiences. And then they think that they won't change as much in the future. And we, we underestimate future change at every step in life. And the fastest time of personality change in your entire life is about 18 to about your, your late 20s. And so that's usually when we're telling people they have to decide what they're going to be forever. So we're usually telling people, you know, pick for the rest of your life. And they're in the spot of like really picking for a person they don't even know yet, you know, <laughs> um, not to mention for a, for a work world they can't even conceive yet because it's changing pretty rapidly. So I, I think you I think setting yourself up to be nimble and flexible is more important than the specific timing of, of when you home in on something. Yeah, that's really good advice there. You mentioned being a freshman in life and kind of doing that over and over again as you're jumping from career to career. It, it basically makes you an expert in transitioning, which is a huge area of focus for me because I do think leaving the NFL or leaving any job is it's rough on people because their identity kind of gets ripped out from them. And you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, being that sports gene guy and then switching gears here. Give people some advice maybe on transitioning as you've underwent a bunch of them. Yeah. First, I think they should read Hermine Ibarra's book called Working Identity because I read it and it really resonated with me about career transitions. She studies career transitions. And one of the things she talks about is how you're basically going to feel like at some point when you transition, you know, that you're crazy or that you're doing the wrong thing. One, because people might tell you that, but also work. The reason it's called working identity is because we spend so much time with our work. Work is part of our identity. And identity does not change overnight. So when you change your, if you change your job or start thinking about it, it's not like your whole identity is just going to flip from one day to the next. Um, as I'm sure, you know, you found when you were leaving the NFL, yeah. um, that that takes time and it happens one piece at a time. And so you're always going to have this period where you have a, a, an identity foot in multiple worlds. And that's always going to feel unsettling, unsettling because of that cognitive dissonance. Um, and so for me, it was really helpful just to, just to know that that's normal basically, and, and to 
you know, to read about other people going through that. And I think one of the lessons I've also learned for transitioning is that nothing you've done is wasted, right? When I thought that I had wasted my science education, then it turned out to be by far the most important thing for me to move up at a sports magazine, not even close. So don't consider those things wasted. When I look at, I'm, I'm now on the, like, or the last two years I've been on the final selection committee for people who the Pat Tillman Foundation gives scholarships to for, for their career changes. And one of the things I've noticed is when we get the applications, I'll look at the resume and the resume will look pretty disjointed. Like maybe it's somebody that, you know, after high school or college, they worked a little while and then they weren't really fulfilled and they went to the military and that was an interesting experience, but they, they end up, I don't know, translating Afghanistan and they suddenly realize that there's a need for a certain type of work that they didn't even know existed before. And so they want to change careers. And when you look at just the resume, it looks like, gosh, this person's all over the place. Even to, even to me, you know, who's, who's, who's been working on this stuff. But then you, you get to know them or, and people they've worked with and more about their story. And you realize far from being disjointed, it's actually a, a pretty coherent narrative of personal growth where instead of picking something and sticking to it, they would go through and say, you know what, something unexpected. I learned an unexpected lesson about some work that's needed or something that I'm good at. So I'm going to change directions. You know, so they are reacting to things that they learned, which is actually exactly what you should want as opposed to someone not kind of assimilating lessons as they go through the world and just going straight ahead. And so, so I think a problem yeah, I wish LinkedIn could kind of have a section where it'd make it easier for people to write the narrative of these career transitions. Otherwise, it looks like just the linear track is the best. But I think we should never apologize for making these career transitions. And instead, when you have to share them with HR people or employers or, or friends and colleagues, like instead of being sheepish about that, tell the, I've learned how to tell my story as one of personal growth where I was pivoting in response to learning as opposed to just like, being a total flake who couldn't keep a job. <laughs> As we talked earlier about Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, and and maybe in her response to your book being published or maybe just kind of coming to it on her own at, at kind of a the right time coincidentally, talking about seasons or summer summer is for sampling, and we got into a little bit of maybe some of her message was a bit misconstrued. I do believe people kind of read and hear what they want to read and hear at the right mm -hmm. time, and they can take out of your book something that may not have been the intention. Is there anything you fear about range or anything you've noticed so far that that may be getting or may be misconstrued down the line? Definitely. I mean, and one of the fears that I had all along and wasn't totally sure how to mitigate especially when the subtitle um, was chosen, because I love the title range and this idea of building range. And, but I do worry about connotations of the word generalist in the subtitle. So it's why generalists triumph in a specialized world. And I've realized as I talk to people that, you know, I, I, I don't want the message to come through of, um, well, you just shouldn't be very interested in anything, right? Like be a dilettante as because my view of, and the generalists I write about are people who get interested in a bunch of different things or try a bunch of different things. It's not someone who's just not very interested in anything and never, um, you know, intent on getting good at anything or, or this idea that like you should actively be bad in order to become good later. Right. Um, I think there are sometimes the things that you do that will cause progress right now can be at odds with your, with your long-term development, but that doesn't mean that you should like try to be bad early on. <laughs> um, 
so I think drawing this difference between dilettantes and, gen and, and what I describe as generalists, and I tried to do that in the last chapter of the book where I um, focused on doctors and scientists, because by any measure, if you look at the general population, doctors and scientists are more specialized than, than most people, and tried to sort of look at, well, even within these people that objectively are very specialized, how can they set themselves apart by sacrificing increasing depth for, for adding breadth? And so I hope that the last chapter resonates that way and that, that it isn't overpowered by just the subtitle where people take the message of like, oh, I don't have to get good at anything. You know? so. <laughs> yeah, because I, I would think one commonality that you can tie between all of these successful stories and anecdotes that you write about in the book is that they weren't just like switching and switching and switching. They were boring down on something and then they realized that maybe they came to a dead end or their passion ran out and then they switched and then they really got into it again. Would you say that one common theme amongst most successful people that you write about is really the intensity of the work that they're doing? Yeah. I mean, when they go in, they go in. And so one of the, one of the, and I think there's a reason for that and multiple reasons for that. But, you know, one of the stories I use in the book is Vincent Van Gogh, who, um, you know, most people don't know, had five careers, all of which he thought were his calling and he, all of which he flamed out in before, you know, nearing age 30, buys a book called The Guide to the ABCs of Drawing. And obviously that works out OK. <laughs> um, and but when he dove into stuff like he had incredible work at. So everywhere where there were records left of him, uh, and he had an incredibly well-documented life, as it turns out. Um, the people that worked around him would be like, you know, maybe they got along with him, maybe they didn't, but they'd be like, man, this guy really, really works. And so he would dive into these things and, and very quickly figure out what fit him or what didn't and what he could take, right? Like he, at, at one point, he tries to be a teacher and a, and a bookseller, and he realizes those jobs don't fit him, but that also he really loves reading and becomes a voracious reader for the rest of his life. And so as he moved through these things, he really threw himself in and would take something out, even though the whole thing didn't fit him. And I think that's kind of um, a decent model for, for how we go into things instead of just never getting that interested in anything, like get deeply interested in a bunch of stuff, hit it hard and, and you'll take something with you when you go on to the next thing. And you hit on it a little bit earlier and you said you really have no idea what's next. And I always hated when I, when I was making transition, people were like, what are you going to do next? But I got to ask you what, mm. where, what, what are you passionate about now? What, where's your mind kind of circulating around a little bit? Yeah, I was always sheepish about this. And now I feel like, although only recently I felt like saying I'm not sure what's next is kind of on brand. So I've gotten less sheepish about it. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, there were other things as as always, like most of the research, I think sort of my, my competitive advantage as a writer, other than having a strong science background, is how wide my search is. So I end up finding finding some things and connecting some things that that, you know, maybe another author hasn't. But um, and that's probably because I take forever to do my worst. But uh, yeah, but that means that a lot of the research I do doesn't go into the book. So I end up getting interested, um, you know, having other stuff that I'm interested in that doesn't that doesn't end up in the book. So there's some other ideas uh, I've been looking at, particularly related to cognitive biases of how people make decisions and evaluate evidence. Um, Although there's been a lot of writing about that. So I think I have to explore what's out there already about like the types of biases that make people unable to evaluate evidence objectively. So I'm interested in that. Um, 
I, at one point in the book writing process, uh, kind of got stuck and took an on, beginner's online fiction writing course. And it kind of blew my mind a little, you know, it didn't matter anything that I'd written or done before. And we had to do an exercise where you write a story with no dialogue. And that kind of triggered something in my head that made me realize I've been writing investigative stuff for a couple of years before that, like right after I left SI, I spent a year reporting on drug cartels and stuff like that. And when you're doing that kind of work, you really want to be quote heavy because especially your lawyers want you to put stuff in other people's words if possible. Right. Um, and so I was like leaning on quotes for explanation all the time, but for a book about science, that's not so good because you can explain things with more clarity in your own narration usually than with quotes. And so after doing that exercise in that class, I went back through the whole manuscript, realized stuff I had to understand better to explain it more clearly um, and stripped a whole bunch of quotes. And it, and it sort of freaked me out a little that I didn't realize that until I took this beginner's class that kind of knocked me out of my normal sense of competence, basically. And so I think the very next thing I'm going to do is is engage in a little more fiction writing and see if that you know improves my improves my nonfiction writing. Oh God, so fun! All right, a couple of quick ones here, and we'll wrap this thing up. Do you have a daily routine, and if you do, what is it? I really don't. When I'm when I'm working on the book, it kind of consumes my whole life, and so I the the distinction and and also I both of my books I have only worked on pre having a kid. So that, I expect that would probably be different now. I would oh, yeah. be less likely to draw no distinction between my life and my work life, which is which is what I did with both of the books, where it's just like, you know, as my wife said, go upstairs, come down two years later. Um, so right now I don't really have um, much of a routine, honestly. And I'm still, I'm still kind of, there's still some momentum from the book because it hasn't been out that long. So I'm still like my schedule is changing extremely rapidly where people are inviting me to things or... Uh, and so, I, and I'm, and I'm going to try to make hay while the sun shines because it only lasts for a little while. So right now I'm actually being really flexible and trying to adjust, uh, to invitations as they're coming in. But, um, I like running a lot. And so that's an important thing. I try to, I try to get in, I try to take my, take, take my kid every morning and just like walk a little bit outside, get him some sun early in the day. You know, it's a nice way for me to start my day and then go see like what invitations suddenly came in for, for next week. Um, so that, that's how it's going at the moment and, and try to get my running in. I live near some trails that go into a national park. So those are things I like to do every day, but I'm very much out of any standard pattern right now. And that's very much because I'm sort of adjusting on a daily basis as, as I get invited to things. You're a moving target. I was just going to ask you, what do you do for exercise? Obviously runner in high school, runner in college and still running. How, how far are we going on a daily basis? You know, I went cold turkey for a while after college, though. It's like, I'll never feel like I'm in shape again. You know, I like being <laughs> a competitor. I liked having teammates. And then after a while off where I did go cold turkey, I realized that actually I do love running and it's a great way to be outside. So pre the kid, I was probably doing about 40 to 50 miles a week. Now I'm probably doing about 20 to 30 miles a week right now. Um, but starting to build back up. And, and since I've been traveling a lot, like you always find that one of the blocks, like when I try to get my parents working out or my my in-laws working out is maybe the, the previous, maybe this is for everybody, or maybe it's just a little more the previous generation. They have this idea, like you got to get all the right clothes on and go to the gym and set off two hours. And, and that, that would be great. You can do that. But when people can't, you can still get a pretty good, even just body weight workout. If you only have 15, 20 minutes and you're in a hotel room, like you can still get some stuff done. It might oh, not absolutely. be as good as if you had two hours, but you're still getting the beginning of that, that improvement curve, which is where the easy stuff is. So, um, so I do lots of, I basically bring like a jump rope or a weighted jump rope in my 
you know, in my luggage wherever I go. And so I've been doing more of that and a little less running lately. Lastly, what do you eat? What's your diet like? Uh, what do I eat? My diet is gets better every year, I would say. Um, but in fits and starts, it's a challenge because I, I love like I, I definitely have a taste for simple carbs, so I have to try to not eat as many of them as I can. Um, and that's that's been made easier by my wife, who is allergic to gluten, so we don't have as much of it. I like I eat a ton of sweet potatoes because um, you can eat them in a million different ways. Oh, they're so good. S- steel cut oatmeal, make it in the slow cooker. You have enough for breakfast for like the entire week. Um, lots of almonds, lots of almond butter, try to get fish in pretty regularly. And actually I don't, I don't want to like, you know, advertise or anything like that, but we, my wife and I have signed up for this thing called hungry root where we get like a delivery of like root based foods every other week in a box with ice. And you just like use those to make things. So that's actually, Oh, cool. cool. I'm gonna have I think to... it's just a small business, but I think it's been pretty cool. Some of the stuff tastes better than others, but I think it's all healthy. Oh, that's fantastic! By the way, sweet potatoes with almond butter on top. If you're if you're think... not doing that already, that is a great treat. How I have not figured out to do that is n- now suddenly stunning me. Well, there since you I go. eat a lot of both of those things. Well, you've taught me so much, so I could teach you that. That would be it. That's that's <laughs> the extent. That. That's the extent of my knowledge that I could give to you. Hey, David, That's better concrete advice than anything I've said. You know? <laughs> that is not true. David, thank you so much for the time. That was wonderful. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really enjoy the conversation. It's a, it's a pleasure when, when somebody engages with anything I do this thoughtfully. Oh, God, it's, it's a fantastic book. Anybody out there listening, go get range. Why generalists triumph in a specialized world. It will not disappoint. It's absolutely one of my top five favorite books of all time. I got a hard copy. I got the audio book. I recommend it to everybody. David, thank you again. Thank you. So I don't know about you guys, but I took so much from that time with David. I read this book at a time in my life when I was beginning to desire a transition away from Sports Talk Radio, a job I did Monday to Friday, three hours a day, 48 weeks a year, three and a half years upon retirement from the NFL. But my interest had seriously begun to turn to health and wellness both from a personal standpoint and from a family perspective. I knew that I wanted to get into this space podcasting, but with only so much time of the day, it wasn't going to be possible to really do both. Something David said to me rung so true as I was beginning to step aside from the daily talk show, and it was when he mentioned that he was starting to, quote, feel crazy and, quote, maybe there's something wrong with me. I'm not just staying the course. And he says he feels that way every time he decides to switch it up. I felt the same way. Why would you give up a well-paying, coveted position for a speculative path with no real foreseeable outcome other than you get to itch your passion? All I can do is shrug and point to another comment that he made about writing the books. He, quote, orients his book projects around topics that will sustain his interest because it's a long and hard process. Well, it's not only writing a book that is long and hard, so is everything else. So you'd better wake up in the morning yearning to get to learning or working on your craft or whatever it may be because if you're not clamoring to get more reps in at your gig, you're never going to be all that good over the long run anyhow. Remember what Andrew Huberman said in a recent podcast, learning requires three things, frustration, focus, and reward. Oftentimes, the reward in successful people that keeps them coming back for more is just getting to do what they love over and over and making that little incremental progress. And it doesn't mean that it's not going to be frustrating because it is, and that's important, but getting to do it again and seeing little nuggets of progress, that's huge. 
That brings me to another line that David said, and we can use it for our kids or ourselves. When you get good fit, it looks like grit. That was so profound to me. It's the difference between a state and a trait as he described it. Oftentimes we think of grit as a personality trait and we attribute it to either something we have or we don't have. You've got gritty people and you have ungritty people. That's not how David sees it and that's not really what science points to. So when we watch our idols perform, we think of them as gritty. Well, put them in something they don't love and see how what we may have thought of as a trait that they have was actually just a state of being associated with their passion. So I really have to keep this in mind with myself and while raising my boys. I simply need to introduce them to enough things until they find what fits them and then it's going to look like grit. Another thing that David mentioned was nothing you have ever done is wasted. He shared a story about how being in the film editing business was the greatest thing to ever happen for his book writing career. I thought that was so fascinating about how he tied all the stories together coming in and out. It's absolutely beautiful. In my own life, I think of my circuitous route to becoming an NFL football player. So I was exclusively a high school wrestler. I went to Purdue University to be in the Marine Corps through the Naval ROTC program when my buddy Frank Avino asked me to walk onto the Purdue football team. I obliged, and sure thing, I made the team. There's no doubt that my wrestling background helped me become an offensive lineman using the balance, leverage, strength, and hand fighting as tools of that trade against defensive linemen, but... Further, and I truly believe this, had I played high school football, there's no chance I would have tried to walk on to the college football team. I was a late bloomer. I didn't hit puberty until almost my junior year of high school. I didn't start growing until then. And then I even kept growing as I was at Purdue University. Had I played high school football, I still would have been slow and undersized and most likely unrecruited at that point in time. And I would have compartmentalized that athletic endeavor and convinced myself that I'd given it my all and I just wasn't good enough. Fortunately, I didn't play and didn't have any mental constraints built in as I showed up to tryouts after Purdue went to the Rose Bowl in January of 2001. I didn't know what I didn't know, and that was one of the greatest blessings of my life. There's also no doubt in my mind that having enrolled in the ROTC program upon entrance at Purdue gave me what I needed at that time discipline, something to wake up early in the morning to that kept me focused on my physical as well as my leadership development. ROTC kept me on track until my ultimate purpose at the time became apparent, which was being a football player. And even as a football player, I remember following 18 months of playing defensive tackle at Purdue after I walked on and heading into the training camp during my fourth year at school. I worked my butt off to get big and strong enough for the Big Ten. I put all the size on. I I worked on my skills and my technique. I was lifting like a crazy man. And I was on track that year to get significant playing time, if not start that season. Well, sure enough, around the second night of training camp, I get a knock on my door in the hotel room, and it was one of our defensive line coaches. His name was Gary Emanuel. Coach E-Man, as we called him, broke the news to me that that come the morning, I was going to be switching over to offensive guard. What? I said. But I, I just got into the place where I'll finally be able to get on the field and actually play. Coach E-Man assured me, though. He said, Nick, you're going to be fine. You, 
you'd be fine at defensive tackle, and sure, you'd play, but honestly, you'd just be pretty average. Watch, when you move over to offensive line, you are going to be great, and with that move, as much as I doubted it and was frustrated at it at the time because of all the effort that I put in and had perceived to be wasted, I hit the lottery, metaphorically and literally. I found my calling, and it just so happened that I got to earn a pretty good living with it. And it turns out that none of my effort was wasted. Here's where none of this book should get misconstrued. In order to find success, it still takes a massive amount of work. What David is urging us to do, I think, is let our hearts lead a little bit more than our minds when it comes to navigating our careers and our lives. He said this, Here are my skills and interests right now, and here are my opportunities right now. Remember he took a job at Sports Illustrated as a temp who was five to six years younger than all of his contemporaries doing fact-checking on the articles others had written. It didn't matter. His background allowed him to catch up quickly on his way to becoming a multiple-time New York Times best-selling author. So at my house, Jamie and the boys were working on Halloween projects on Monday. They were building tie-dyed bats out of coffee filters using markers and clothespin. They color the filter, soak it with water, put it in the sun to kind of spread the ink, they, t- they turned out really rad. Anyhow, Teddy, my five-year-old, in this whole process, he kept wanting to scrap his project and start over when he thought he messed up. And we let him two times. And the third time he asked for another filter, thinking he messed up again, we denied him. We made him just work around this perceived blunder. He did. Then he sprayed it when he finished with the marker. He sat it out in the sun. And yesterday morning, before school, he went and grabbed the bat and stuck it in my face. And he said, isn't it awesome, Dad? And I said, it's beautiful, Teddy. And it, it really just reminded me, this life we live is more like an art project than a roadmap. When it comes to your career decisions, there are no real mess-ups, just lessons and experience. Follow your heart, work your ass off at any opportunity that you're given, and give yourself a break, people. You can always work around any perceived blunders that you make. Continue to put that marker on the coffee filter, spray it, set it out in the sun, and let's see how it turns out. Love you guys. As always, thank you for the time.